Yeah. Tell him I'm in conference. Can't you see I'm in conference? I'm looking to find a client of yours. I was hoping you could help me out with an address. Which client? Jesse Pinkman. Jesse Pinkman in the phone book, Jesse Pinkman. Hmm. How would one track him down, I wonder? I need your full attention, Saul. Jesse Pinkman, current whereabouts. The sooner you tell me, the sooner you can get back to whatever the hell this is exactly. What am I, eighth grade hall monitor? <laughs> current whereabouts? Let me tell you something, Whoa, Mikey. You are good right there. Now let's both get comfortable. Finding the answers that you want isn't as simple as just looking it up in the obvious place. It requires your full attention, some critical thinking skills, and in this case, definitely getting comfortable because it might take a while to find the answers you want. This episode is going to be all about our process and and the process some others use as well of choosing and reading papers. This is one of the common questions that I heard from folks, like how did you choose which papers? How do you, you know, you've, you've made it known that you don't really like reading research. So how do you go about it? And, and we do this both for the show and for our own general knowledge as coaches. I think both of us have, have spent some time reading research. You probably a lot more than me, um, over the years. I've read a few. That's for sure. Do you enjoy reading research? I enjoy what comes out of it, but I don't think it's something that like, you know, I'm excited to sit down like with a cup of coffee and like skim through real quick and just, you know, knock out three or four papers at a time. Like it's a very active process. Yeah. And if you're not going into it with that intention and maybe trying to struggle and struggle to focus a little bit and tease out some of this information, you're not going to get a lot out of it that you need. Yeah, I agree. Uh, For me, it's like I enjoy the, the brain downtime that it sort of requires. And I don't mean that in like you're, you're not using your brain, mm-hmm. but I'm just using it in a different way than I do most of my work and my climbing um, throughout my general day. It's like I'm, I'm focused on this one thing and I'm trying to ask intelligent questions, um, but it's a mental shift for me. And, and I have to be fully absorbed by that thinking and reading about this one thing. I certainly wouldn't choose it as like my leisure time activity. Um, but I do enjoy that part of it. Oh, for sure. And like, I, it's almost a good point of focus. Like I'll put my phone away, like away from me so I can't be distracted. So it is nice to have that time to really just think about one thing and really lock in on something. Yep. Totally. I agree. Uh, all right. You ready to get this thing started? Let's do it. You clearly don't know who you're talking to. So let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Lucky two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? Ready, 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 ready? I'm ready. Are you? Abso-fucking-lutely. Doing these episodes, Breaking Beta or these Better Call Pauls, this is the third Better Call Paul, is just a really great way for me. Same as reading research, it's it's a really great way for me to focus in on 
um, furthering my education about coaching and climbing training in general. So I fucking love it. It's great. Um, this could be because we're going to be talking about, you know, how we choose papers, how we read papers. It could be a, an episode where we end up all over the place. So we're going to try to structure it in a way that makes sense for folks, especially if you're somebody who doesn't spend a lot of time reading research, but you would like to. And it can be pretty daunting. There's a lot going on when you're like, oh, I'm going to go look at the research yeah. on rock climbing. Like, where do you start? What should you actually listen to and use? How do you find all this? How do you, do you have to pay for these? Like, it's, there's a lot going on with this. Right. And it's drastically different than like sitting down and reading a training book or something. That's going to be more of a sit down and read it as opposed to reading research where it's flipping through and lots of, critical thinking and, you know, requires you to kind of be all over the place. Very much so. Um, there are two basic types of papers, um, primary research and reviews. And to decide which you want to look at, you first have to sort of think about how much literature there is on the subject matter. For instance, when we were doing season one, we talked about uh, creatine and stretching. Um, and those two topics are huge. So looking at an individual paper, which is, um, it's an original study done by, done by the authors. That's, that's what primary research is. And then a review is taking a bunch of primary research papers and sort of collecting them all together, trying to pull the relevant information out. When there's a massive amount of research, looking at one paper only gives you a tiny little sliver of what's out there. So in those cases, like we did with stretching and creatine, makes sense to look at a review. And, you know, those reviews are great ways to get a general idea on what the consensus is on how to go about a certain concept or training method. Mm -hmm. And it could also point you in the direction of different pieces of primary research because those reviews assemble everything. Yeah. And you can either A, look for, you know, when they cite the certain study in a certain part of this review, look for the things that you agree with and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to follow this deeper down the rabbit hole. It's also important if you find a couple things that surprise you, you don't agree with, you can go look up those papers too and either A, see something that maybe you don't agree with and how the things were done or B, it makes you think a little bit harder about how you think about things and maybe it'll challenge some biases and make you better in, in the long run. Yeah, totally. If if there is a review on the topic that you're looking at, I think that's a great source for the primary research in general. Um, they've done the work of taking all this research and saying these are relevant to this topic. So we are going to include these in this larger review and you can go look at all those citations and and pull, if you want to see the primary research, you can do it that way. You know, find a good list through a review. Or you could just read the review, try and come up with some training method that's different than everything else is out there. Jump immediately to implementing it without seeing if it's actually <laughs> applicable or works with training someone. And then call it the new direction of climbing. And then there you go. This this approach was born for Instagram. You should just, <laughs> you should put it on there. <laughs> um. However, when you're looking at like climbing, which is the thing that we're focused on, there's not a ton of research. So you, you sort of have to go down the, the path of looking at primary research, looking at individual papers. And 
you know, we might be doing a, a sort of review on our own, looking at four or five papers that are on one topic, but there really isn't going to be enough to do a comprehensive review of any topic in the climbing world. I mean, I haven't found any and I've looked for some, um, if you're listening and you know of one, shoot that our way. Um, but yeah, yeah, I haven't found any, at least systematic reviews or meta-analysis or anything like that. I haven't really come across any of that directly pertaining to climbing yet. Do you go in and look at the full paper? Do you generally read every word in a paper? I'm curious. I try to go through every section piece by piece, um, starting, you know, you always got to start with the abstract, abstract, at least scan it to see if this is something you want to continue reading. Sometimes you'll see an abstract, I'm like, ah, this isn't really helpful to me. Like I could spend my time doing something different, but once you get past the abstract, I do try and work through section by section. Um, my eyes glaze, my, may glaze over sometimes when they get into like the statistical processes. It's, you know, that's why, that's why we brought Dale on last, last episode. Right. Cause that's not my wheelhouse, but yeah, I'll look at trying to read every word. You know, I'm highlighting things, I'm writing questions so I can come back to it at the end of the paper, but I try and work through section by section. Do you do the same with reviews? Uh, I do skim a little more with the review. I think the tables are uh, the really helpful part of the review where they get, they give you the basic idea of the study, really just rough idea of the methods, the results for each study. So you can kind of get an idea of what they're getting at. And I think the discussion is really helpful for the uh, review. Yeah, same. Because they go a bit more into detail and kind of put it into a more cogent train of thought that you can follow a little easier than just jumping all over the place from study to study, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of what I do with reviews as well. I was curious about that in your process because – you know, there aren't really methods that they're talking about in a review because they're looking at so many different papers with different methods. Um, so I tend to just go straight to the discussion. Like I'll, I'll read the the introduction and, you know, see what it is the authors are actually trying to find out, you know, what, what questions are they trying to answer here? And then I'll go straight to the discussion and see, you know, were those, were those questions answered? What are they seeing in the research? Um, for me, I can scan reviews a little more, um, particularly when I'm using it for my own general knowledge. You know, if we're doing it for breaking beta, I might read it a little more closely. But for my own general coaching knowledge, I'll I'll, I'll scan. Um, with with primary research, that's kind of the only time I look at the abstract is to decide if I really want to read the paper in full. Um, is it asking an interesting question? And, and I'm talking general coaching knowledge, training knowledge here. Um, is it relatable to real life, real world climbing? Um, or does it get way, way in the weeds of something that really isn't going to have an impact on how we train or climb? And then I'll, you know, if that's the case, I just, I just put the paper away. I'm like, I don't, I don't need to know this right now. Maybe down the road, you know, somebody will ask an, a really interesting question based on this. But right now, if it's not going to impact my coaching or training, I just don't bother. Yeah. And I think that's why, why the abstract's there, personally. Like, if you're just looking at the abstracts, you're not getting the information you need. But it's step one to filter the the, the um, papers you're going to dig deeper on. And I think that's a, you know, a really important tactic, um, using the abstract to decide is this the thing I'm going to look deeper into? Um, sometimes the breaking beta, we will purposely 
go deeper into papers that we know don't really translate very well to real world useful information. Um, they might be great for scientific purposes, don't really translate to our coaching. Um, but in, in real life, I would probably not go down that rabbit hole at all. I wouldn't look at that paper. And you know, the good news is abstracts are all free. You can find the abstracts for every paper out there, you know, PubMed's great resource. Um, you can go to the journals sites, a website and subscribe to a email feed. That'll give you a notification. If new studies get published, you can tag that to certain keywords. Like every week I'll get emails with a couple things, um, bouldering, sport climbing, or just other training topics I'm interested in. I'll change those filters. So I get like a weekly digest, if you will. And you can just pull up the title and look at the abstract and, you know, either save this paper or just move on. Is that the main way that you find papers? Uh, PubMed's a big one with those alerts. Um, I'm also subscribed to the, uh, the NSCA's journal is a good one, such as Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And uh, that also has a Strength and Conditioning Journal as well, which is the Strength and Conditioning Journal is a little more, I would say, coachable, ap- applicable things. And the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research is more of the nitty gritty science based or uh, more scientific topics, such as looking at maybe some more in depth physiological things or genetic things stuff along that uh, nature. But yeah, it's usually email alerts or sometimes I'll just set some time aside and just scan through and search for certain keywords. If I'm thinking about something training wise or want to just get up to speed on certain topics. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great way to see what research is out there. Um, there's also Google scholar, which is really easy to use for folks. Um, absolutely. But I think if you're, if you're someone who's pressed for time, doesn't want to spend a lot of time searching for keywords. I think the using that filter system through PubMed is really the best, most effective use of, of these sites. Mm-hmm. There's a couple, um, there's a couple sites. One's called mass. Um, it's more like a powerlifting type, uh, focus, but they will actually combine a bunch of training studies and you can pay for subscription. It's not terribly expensive and they'll combine the studies. You'll get access to the studies. They'll break down their takings from each study. And that's another option for people as well. These services that'll group things and do a little bit of the work for you to get you started. Someone made a comment on one of our Instagram posts from season one that if a paper is not in PubMed, then it's not a a reputable paper. Um, and I've looked into that a little bit just to see. And PubMed takes a very specific type of paper. They don't take every bit of sports research that there is. Um, it just doesn't fit into their parameters. But that doesn't mean that it's not reputable. Um, there are, however, lots of journals out there that are not reputable, that are predatory. You know, they're all based on you paying them to be published, um, or, and they're just not, they're not nearly as stringent, um, as the reputable journals are. There's a a site that you can go to if that's a a thing you're concerned about, uh, called Beals list. It's at, uh, Beals, B E A L L S list.net. I'll have the link in the show notes and on the blog post. Um, you can just type in the journal name and it will tell you if there are red flags on that journal. And that's a great resource because there's a lot of that that's behind the scenes that you won't necessarily know. Yeah. 
And so you look that up. So that's, that's a good thing to have in there, I think. Yeah. And it's a tough thing to know. Mm -hmm. know, How would you? Yeah. It's intentionally hard to know, you know, they hide that shit. So yeah, especially with a sport like climbing, which is so small, so niche, um, you know, it's going to be a tiny little audience. So it's going to be harder to get published in a big journal. And just because it's a small journal doesn't mean it's a bad study. It can still be really rock solid work. It just might not cater to the larger scientific community. And that's why there's these frameworks for putting out these articles. You can really look at and see if people did do the work and follow a scientific process to find the answers. So it doesn't matter really the size of the journal as long as it's reputable. Yeah, totally. Um, Anything else you've thought of, Paul, about choosing papers? I think personally for me, and you mentioned this as well, I'm looking for things I can apply to to working with individuals either in person or you know online. But sometimes if I'm working on a certain topic where I can use these with people, then maybe I'll look at the more abstract science-based research that's done about it. But I'm always about how can I use this? How is this applicable to my coaching practice? Yeah, totally. One of the only times I go into um, papers that I would normally discount as I don't think I can pull anything useful from this uh, in my real world coaching is if I'm looking at an article that cites one of those studies, um, then I might go look at it to try to understand a little more how it ties into this thing that I am finding useful. Um, So I do think I will often find myself down that citation rabbit hole where I'm looking at papers that normally I would have completely skipped over. For sure. Getting stuck in that, the footnote or the reference uh, wormhole, deeper and deeper and deeper. Now I'm going to get pulled to this paper. Now I'm going to get pulled to this paper. So it can happen. That's for sure. It's really easy for it to happen. (laughs) All right. uh, The nuts and bolts of looking at it. Now that you've kind of chosen a paper, you, you know, it's from somewhere reputable. How do you actually go about looking at it? I have a really specific process that I use for breaking beta, which is different than how I normally read a paper. Normally I do a little more skimming than I do for this show. Um, if I find it's something that's, that could potentially be really useful in my training or coaching, then I might use the process I do for breaking beta to look at it more in depth. Usually I'm more of a skimmer. How about you? Is your is your breaking beta process the same as your normal process? If I'm sitting down to read the paper, it's pretty similar. I try and be pretty granular and you know go line by line best I can. Um, when I get to the methods of something, I'll try and I'll pull out a separate piece of paper or just write on the study the characteristics of the population they're doing the study on. I'll try and write out their methods in my own words just so I can a talk about it and B, I think if you write something out in your own words, it helps you kind of grasp things a little better. So totally. I'll try and do that a lot as I work through things. I'll write things out, whether it's like I just talked about the subjects or the methods or maybe thoughts or concepts that they're trying to make a point on. I'll try and write those out as I work through things. So I'm reading and writing at the same time, pretty much. Yeah, I do the same thing. Do you do you use a hard copy? Like do you print it out and look at it, or do you most often you know, just look at it on a computer. 
I have an iPad, so I'll just pull the PDF onto an iPad and I've got some basic just PDF editing software that lets me highlight and write. And that way what's cool too is I think I've shared a couple with you or I've done that and it saves those and they can just send it to someone. They can already see what I've highlighted or pulled out, or I can go back and see that quickly. And my office slash workroom is usually a goddamn disaster of papers <laughs> and things. So the smallest amount of paper right now I can use the better. Yeah, I hear you. I've, I've been thinking along the same lines of like, I have to stop using hard copies um, because I'm definitely a highlighter person and I've, I've done it a little bit using a PDF editor, but I'm not nearly as good at it and I'm not as comfortable with it. So I'm, I'm currently still using hard copies, but the environment would be happy if I didn't do that. I mean, I'm looking up right now. I've got like nine of those moleskin notebooks that I used up before that. There's papers everywhere. Like it's just a little more simple for me these days. Yeah. And I like it. Yeah. For me, number one, uh, I get comfortable. I, I'm going to be sitting in a place where I, and know I can sit for a while, you know, might have coffee, something to drink. I know I'm going to be there. I have a hard copy and I have highlighters. I, I really like using highlighters. And the funny thing is I went back to our season one papers and I had color coded my highlighting, but I'd never made a key. So now I don't remember what my color coding <laughs> I was meant. about to ask what the key was, <laughs> but I guess we're just lost there. huh? Yeah. It was all in my head for season one. And now I can't remember at all. I had, so I had two different highlighting colors. One was something I liked or what I thought was useful. And then I had a red highlight, which is something I just wasn't quite sure about or wanted to go back and like think about it. So Mm, you can know, you know, where to take things and with these ideas. Yeah. I like that. I spend a lot of time writing in the margins as well. Um, Or I'll just put big question marks next to something that I want to come back to. Um, But lots of scribbling for me, questions, comments. Well, I think that's reflective of an active process of reading though, right? You're not just staring at it, just trying to passively absorb with this process. You need to be pretty active with it and engage with it in a hundred percent their way. Yep. And I think that's a key. That's definitely a, a strong key to reading research is you have to be really active or you're going to zone out, mm-hmm. um, you know, unless you're a very special breed of person that can read through this stuff you will zone out. And for me, having the highlighters and the questions in the margins are a great way to really find the relevant information quickly. Because when I'm reading a paper, I tend to jump around a lot and flip back and forth. And, you know, what did they say over here? And let me look at that table again. And, you know, this just helps me do it a little more efficiently. I agree. Uh, You said in correct me if I'm wrong here, but you kind of go linearly through the paper. You start on page one and just keep reading. Yep. All the way through. And then at the end, I'll go back and reread any of the questions I may have written down when I was doing it. Um, and sometimes, you know, you write that question down and it gets answered later in the paper. So I'll either be able to address that question or be like, Hey, this is still a question. I need to dig deeper or recheck some things as I go back through the paper a second or third time. But the first time through, yeah, I'm just following along line by line, actively reading. That's exactly what I used to do. And I, one of the things that sort of developed out of creating this podcast is something that I really like and that I'm going to continue to do when I'm just reading for my own sake. And that's that, you know, I'm, I'm looking for 
what is the the big question that's being asked? What's the aim of this research? So I'll go first to the introduction. And oftentimes the final paragraph of the introduction starts with the aim of this research is to, or the aim of the study is to. I would say most of the time it's there. Like it's pretty explicitly stated, which is great. Yeah. So I highlight that, you know, I know I need that for these episodes and then I know I need results for these episodes. So I'll go and go straight to, you know, from there to the conclusion discussion area hmm. and look for what the results are. Like, did you answer your question? Is that what actually happened here? Um, and what was that answer? And then I start to form my own questions, um, writing these in the margins, highlighting them because I think it's, it's easy for researchers to get into the weeds. They're excited about what they're doing. You know, they can get into the weeds and not actually be answering the questions they set out to answer, but shooting off on tangents and going down other rabbit holes. And those things can be really interesting and valuable, but, but I want to know, did you answer the actual question that you set out to answer? Sometimes they don't. And then I try to decide why they didn't like looking at the methods and trying to decipher those. I like that. That's an interesting way of going about it. I might have to try that for a paper or two this next season. Just see if that changes the process or I pull anything different out of it. Yeah. I also like, I put on this really critical lens. Um, It's kind of just what I do with everything, you know? (laughs) Um, But I definitely come into research looking for the things that these researchers are saying that will cause it to not really apply in the real world. Um, you know, they're stripping away variables. It's a, it's a necessary part of this science. Uh, and a lot of the things that they are saying or answering or that their study shows, I can't actually apply. And sometimes I'm way too critical with that. So I'm trying to learn to tone that back. But sometimes it also shows you some really interesting things. You know, for instance, in episode two of season one, we looked at the, you know, the fingertip pulp study and that, that study completely strips away the real world variables of repeated attempts that are going to shred your skin, particularly if it isn't thick and tough And the fact that if you're using a 2.8 millimeter edge to begin with, it's, you know, it's likely that that climber will succeed because they can get their weight on their feet, not because they can pull on that edge harder than everybody else. Um, So when they make statements like toughening your skin might be counterproductive for climbing on tiny edges, I have to be able to look at that and say, okay, they're, they're missing a lot of the real world variables here. Um, so I have to take all of this with a grain of salt. Yeah. Or just go into it with the mindset that, okay, that might apply in this extremely specific situation where you're pulling on a sandstone block drilled to a wood plate, pulling straight down. Yeah. Taking away everything else that makes up climbing, but it's useful in that situation. But like you said, maybe not as reflective in the real world. Yeah. So I think it's important to have that critical lens on and to go into it with that thought, you know, the, (laughs) the job of these scientists is to hold up to those critiques, right? Mm -hmm. So, absolutely. so it should be welcomed in these papers for people to come at them, um, with a critical lens. 
Yeah, I agree. By having my critical lens on, I can look at the methods and say that the methods do or don't really apply either to the original question um, or to the real world. Like maybe they're stripping out a variable that's a really necessary part of using this skill or strength or whatever in the real world. Um, so I think that's probably the place in the paper where I spend the most of my time is I'll sort of skim through the introduction, through the conclusion and the discussion. And then I go into the methods and that's where I have to be really comfortable. And I spend a lot of time scratching my head and with a calculator. And, you know, like you said, I think it's a great idea to try to write those methods out in your own way because researchers are people and they're going to fall victim to the fact that they're very familiar with the thing they're doing. So it's harder to explain it. Um, and there, there are going to be parts missing sometimes that you don't quite understand or- Or it could be wildly complicated and it's hard to yeah. grasp what they're actually doing because there's just so much mm -hmm. information in the methods. Yeah. For me, the methods are the most complicated, time-consuming part for sure. And, and that should be because A, they need to write that out so another group can either replicate these results or build on the results based on a similar study or by creating a similar study. And just they need to they need to show their work. They need to explain what exactly they did as clear as possible. Yep. Have there been times when you're reading papers that when you first read the methods, you're like, why on earth did they do it this way? This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then after you've spent a while like marinating in in their methods, you're going, oh, now I get it. It actually does make sense. I can't think of any specific examples, but I know that's definitely happened. Maybe not all the time when I'm confused or I'd think methods don't make sense, but definitely a few times looking back on it. I think it's happened to me a fair number of times, largely because I go in with that skeptical lens and I'm immediately looking for the problems, you know? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm going to tear this shit apart. And I'm like, why did you do this? Shouldn't have done this. Why didn't you do it this way? And then after I'm in there for a few minutes, I'm like, oh, okay. Wait that, a minute. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I came across a, a paper actually um, called 10 Simple Rules for Reading a Scientific Paper. It's from uh, Carrie Steiner and Petrie. Uh, very applicable name here for a scientist. One of the things that they had in there, they had 10 rules, but one of them was six important questions to ask. And I, I really liked these six questions. And they're something I've tried to do, but I haven't put them into you know this list nearly as well as they did. Uh, number one is, what do the authors want to know? What's their motivation? You know, I think that's that's where all all of these papers come from is these people are passionate about this thing and they have a question they want to answer and they're motivated to find that. And it takes a lot of fucking work mm -hmm. and time and money to, to get to where they are. So they have to be really motivated. Some of the other ones, what do they do to approach? What do they do? So, you know, the approach, and the methods, which I think we just talked about was, you know, how do they do it? How can someone do it? exactly like they did, uh, were there any holes in how he did these things? And 
that's a big question to ask, kind of find those answers. Mm-hmm. And and then why was it done that way? And and they make the point of you know looking at the context within the field, which I think is really important. If you're a you know if you're a baseball scientist and you're coming in to study something about climbing, it's entirely possible you don't quite understand climbing nearly as well. So your, your study is going to be set up in a way that reflects your knowledge of climbing, which is very little. Um, so if me as a, a reader of this research who understands climbing really well is going in and reading something about rugby and then trying to take those results and translate it into climbing, I first need to understand rugby a little bit, you know, before I even have a chance of making that transition. And you're going to usually find a good starting point for this in the introduction to the paper. So past mm-hmm. the abstract when they get into that first section, because usually there's a good amount of work done there that highlights that context and makes it a little bit more appreciable as you go into the paper. So I think that'd be a good mix of both the introduction and the method sections of a paper could give you a lot of good answers to the context within the field and why things were done that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. The fourth question is what do the results show? So, you know, that's where you're going to find the figures and the data and the actual measurable outcome of whatever experiment or test was run. So, you know, this is where they have the information that's backing up the claims they make in the end. Yeah. I, I found a few articles, um, you know, asking like students and researchers, how they read papers um, that I'll also link in the show notes here for folks. And a lot of those people would jump straight from the abstract or introduction into the figures. Um, for me, that does not work. I have to, I have to form a more complete picture of the question that's being asked and what the answers they think they found are before I can look at the figures. But if you're a person who's inclined to, you know, to graphs and charts, that might be a a great way to go. For sure. Yeah. Everyone's going to go, you know, the route that they're most comfortable with. So some people like the more concrete empirical things coming from the table and numbers and statistics and all those methods that go into these papers. Yeah. And I think number five works with number four really well for me anyway. Um, How did the authors interpret the results? Mm -hmm. And that's where I find the tables and the figures really important because the authors might interpret the results a little differently than I would. Very much so. Yeah. Um, and that's not saying one is necessarily more valid than the other. It's just saying I have a different experience. I have a different perspective on the sport than they do, um, on how I interact with clients and athletes than they do. So my interpretation of those results is going to reflect my experience and theirs is going to reflect their experience. So I I think it's important to know both of those things. And at the very least, you know, the claims they make in that discussion should be backed up by the data. However, whatever context they give it or whatever direction they take it, like it shouldn't just be some wild claim where you look back and you can't understand why they said this. So that's, that's, it just shows how, you know, you're jumping back and forth all over these papers as you're going through it one, two, three times. And then, you know, the last, the end of the paper, what should be done next? That's the big question to ask. You know, sometimes papers don't do a fantastic job of this, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, But I think, you know, that's up to us too, as we're reading it and using this in our practice, we can think about that and where can we take this next or how can I use this concept and better it? And maybe I'm not going to, I'm not going to write a study about it, but you can 
test it out in practice with the people you work with or with yourself along those lines? Yeah, that's actually a, a, a area that I wish was flushed out a little bit in mm-hmm. that how many practitioners are reading studies and saying, I wish they had done this. I wish I knew the answer to this. This is the next logical question. I hope someone is asking it. But then those thoughts just float off into the ether mm-hmm. and and the researchers never hear those questions. Um, I wish there was a more direct line of communication that I know of, that I knew of, Mm -hmm. um, to the researchers, um, for asking those sort of questions from the practitioners. Um, because for me, that's the really important part of all of this is how can we build on this study to better answer this question or to answer the next logical Mm -hmm. question. And I know from the few people I know who have published research that, Usually there's at least one email address people can reach out to. And for the most part, you know, I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouth, but most of the times the people who do this research are happy to communicate at least a little bit or would like to receive feedback on where to take things next. Um, I'm sure some people don't like that, but that could be a next step if you have a question or you want to encourage a direction of a line of thought to go, that could be someone to reach out to. Yeah, totally. And we're putting our questions out into the into the world. So oh, yeah. hopefully some researchers are actually listening to this to get some of that, not just to hear us bashing them on occasion. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to run through those one more time just to have them all in one spot for folks. Um, six important questions to ask when you're reading research. Number one, what do the authors want to know? What's their motivation? Number two, what did they do? the approach and the methods, uh, why was it done that way, context within the field, and number four, what did the results show? You can see that in the figures and the data. And number five, how did the authors interpret the results? And number six, what should be done next? And I was happy to come across this because I feel like this is something we did pretty well in season one, Mm -hmm. um, going through these papers is making sure we're asking all of these questions. It's always nice to find something backing up the way you do things in retrospect, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Do we want to go into Sci-Hub at all? Um, it is a shame how easy they make it to find papers. It's definitely illegal (laughs) and you should never do it ever. But if you, you should never absolutely ever use Sci-Hub (laughs) <laughs> Even on accident, because it's really easy to get papers that way. But don't yeah, do it. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was sort of thinking maybe we'll just not say it. Um, I will say going back to uh, the communication with a lot of these researchers, a lot of times if you reach out to them, they may be able to find you a copy of that full text. Yeah, that that's a good, good beta. Um, a lot of these, when you're looking at them, they say, you know, email the author for for the full text and... I think it's probably, this is totally me guessing, but it's probably fairly rare that people actually do that. It seems like making a phone call to someone, you know, like mm-hmm. when you go to someone's website and they're like, just call this number and nobody ever fucking calls, yeah. you know, <laughs> even though you could reach somebody that way. That's what I feel like it is, but that's entirely me guessing. Yeah. That could be a good way to get a full text if you don't want to deal with some of the hoops that publishing companies put out there. Yeah, exactly. It's, it would be, 
you know, this thing I'm lamenting that as far as I know does not exist, this open line of communication between the researchers and the practitioners, it's almost impossible for that to exist when all of these papers are behind various paywalls. And, you know, if there were an easy place to collect all of these things and for practitioners to look at it and then communicate, that would be fantastic. I'd love it. That'd be awesome. Yeah. But alas, it doesn't exist yet, I think. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully we're going to have, you know, within this season and maybe a few episodes after the season, uh, we'll talk to some of these researchers mm-hmm. and, you know, get some of their takes on these things as well. How how publishing works, how communication with the practitioners works um, and what what they see that works well and what doesn't. Um, I think that's something really valuable that we could dive into. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for when we go down that route. All right. We've put links to several articles showing how other researchers, PhD students, et cetera, read research for themselves. Um, if you're looking at these, keep in mind the context. Students are going to read it differently than a researcher um, who's hoping to continue that line of questioning. And, and that's going to be different than how coaches are reading the research and how podcasters are reading the research. You know, we're all looking at it through our own lens from our own perspective. So keep that in context. You don't have to necessarily mimic the way someone else reads research to, to get the benefits of it. Um, you can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links right there in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga. We are both instructors at the Power Company Climbing Academy along with several other coaches. And you can get signed up for updates on new courses for climbers and coaches by following the link in your show notes. We've got a big course coming this summer that you're going to want to be the first to know about. Mm -hmm. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please... Tell all of your friends who think they fully understand the research because they read the abstract (laughs) or worse, they read an Instagram summary, even if it's from us, that you have the perfect podcast for them. And we'll see you next week when we discuss the research standards decided upon by the International Rock Climbing Research Association. That is a mouthful. (laughs) And whether or not they make sense when looking at real world rock climbing. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next time. It's done. You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Rifflord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Retro Nadio.